Instead of names and dates, let's focus on the narrative. I'm Adam Blesky. Each month I sit down with a friend to have a real conversation about a part of history that's new to them. The goal is to make connections, to foster curiosity, and to appreciate how incredible the story of humanity truly is. I'm not an expert. This isn't a lecture. This is HI 101. Most people have some idea that their government might be up to things they don't know about. The majority of people might not even consider it actively unless asked about it, but if pressed, very few people would be surprised. The legality of some of these covert operations aside, it's fairly routine. What distinguishes the Iran-Contra affair is that in an unsettling departure from routine, those not quite legal actions were brought to light in a very public manner, and the American population was forced to confront the uncomfortable truth that their government was breaking the law behind their backs. Today, we'll be looking specifically at the background of the scandal, what exactly it was that the CIA was up to in the Middle East and South America, and why they were even there in the first place. We'll need a lot of baseline information in order to understand just what the American people had to be so upset about when the news of the affair broke. Let's begin. Okay, I'm here on HI 101 with Paul McGowan. Howdy. How's it going, Paul? Uh, it's going pretty well. That's good. It's good to have you back on the show. Thank you. Yeah, it's good to be back. Yeah. So today we're going to talk about the Iran-Contra affair. Yeah. Which is... Very exciting. I'm looking forward to doing it this one. It seems super complicated. It I is. I have so many questions. I did a lot of research for this one. I still don't know if I've got everything 100%. I think I've got a pretty good idea. Man, I, I, I did a lot of reading for this topic. Yeah. yeah. I was just kind of perusing the Wikipedia overview again. And yeah, it seems like there are a lot of moving parts. And I don't... Yeah, I feel like it would have been a ton of reading. Yep, absolutely. I, I also find it interesting that now that I've been doing the show just long enough that I'm starting to get some repeat guests, yeah. there's certain of our guests that are kind of falling into certain categories of history, uh-huh. which I think is great because it, it kind of shows that like maybe that's something you're a little more interested in than other stuff. But this is the second topic that you and I are doing on basically American foreign policy, mm-hmm. which is kind of interesting. Uh, we, we've had two with uh, Miller as well, where we were talking about sort of um, engineering or technology history, right. where we had one that was uh, Tesla and Edison and one that was the space race. Yeah. So yeah. that's, I, I really like that because that means it's working. You know what I mean? Like people are yeah. actually picking stuff that they're, that they're drawn to. And I think that's fantastic. For sure. But uh, yeah, of all the ones to be drawn to, this is a, this is a bit of a Gordian knot, that's for sure. Yeah. We'll do our best to hack away at it, though. And um, we may not even get super far into the political ramifications within the United States for the first half. Mm-hmm. Uh, we may do mostly back 
story for the first half but that's okay we need to know all this stuff before we have a really good understanding of what's actually going on here yeah so let's start off talking about nicaragua okay and sort of south america in general i'm actually a little more comfortable with south america than uh than the middle east which is something we'll be talking about a little bit more about later Mm. but in in school i actually took an entire semester-long course just on American foreign policy in South America. That's how much material there actually is in that very narrow sort of window of topics because right. it's they've, they've done a lot of meddling down there. And that brings me to one other thing that I'd wanted to say before we get going too far. I'm going to have a lot of biases that seem to be coming out when we're talking about this stuff okay. because it's really hard to talk about something like American intelligence getting involved in other countries' affairs without coming off as sounding kind of anti-American. Yeah. All I can really say about that is that, I mean, I, I honestly don't think it's a great thing that they're meddling in all of these things. When it comes to discussing history or when it comes to reading history or doing what we're kind of doing today, which is constructing history, history is a construct, right? Like that's Mm-hmm. There's 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 chronology. That's an order of things that happens. And then there's history, which is the way we talk about things that have happened. So when we're con- constructing history, you can't just set aside all bi- bias, right? So the best that we can do is sort of acknowledge that bias and move on from there. Of course. I mean, it was real people doing doing real things. And, and there are going to be things that seem morally better or worse than other things. So yeah, that's, that's... Absolutely. Um, the, the only thing that I'm, I'm, I can really say as a caveat here is that we are talking about a lot of shades of gray today. There's nothing worse than saying that, How you know... How many shades of gray? <laughs> Don't answer that. Um, yeah, there's no black and white here. There's no one country that's good and one country that's bad. There's no one group here that is uh, entirely in the right or entirely in the wrong. Everyone's acting in what they believe to be their best interests and usually in the best interests of others. So mm. that is something to keep in mind as we move through a tangle of political assassinations and, <laughs> and intrigue and going behind Congress's back and things like that. So uh, like I said, it, it's not really meant to come across as a super anti-American show, but it's going to sound that way. It's going to sound that way inevitably at some point. So I had to say something. So we'll start back in the 30s, where basically the United States policy towards most of South America was, let's set up businesses here and run them essentially as mills for for our own economic prosperity. So they're going to buy up all the best land. They're going to grow things really cheap down there with cheap labor. And then they're going to take it back up to the the, the U.S. Okay. And what they're really looking for in a government in South America that, at that point in time is someone who's friendly to U.S. business ventures. So they wanted a colony without legally having to govern. Yes. Okay. I think that is a very accurate way to look at it. The United States, because of its beginnings, which we talked about last time, mm-hmm. uh, and that was a great podcast. You should really go back and listen to it if you yeah, haven't. Yeah, yeah. Um, they they began on such an anti-imperial sentiment. Like the, the whole revolution was about anti-imperialism, about all of this rhetoric regarding how there'll never be an imperial power like 
Britain was mm-hmm. makes it really hard for when they actually get to a place of you know global superiority to do the things that other globally superior countries are doing namely imperialism yeah so they find these creative ways around imperialism that aren't technically imperialism and a lot of times it is like purely economic in nature rather than economic and political right which is what traditional imperialism looks like so they don't really care what the governments are up to down there as long as they're willing to entertain American business at really good prices. Okay. Often, this is really detrimental to the people living there, just like regular imperialism. Mm -hmm. Because it keeps wages low, tends to take away all the best land for, you know, for economic ventures that are going to be pumping money out of the country. Sure, Rather than, say keeping all of that really good land available for growing food for the actual citizens of that country. Yeah. In 1927, a guy named Augusto Nicolas Sandino started leading this rebellion in Nicaragua against these, this sort of uh, very American-friendly uh, system, which at that point had so consumed the Nicaraguan government that essentially he was fighting American corporations almost directly okay. more than he was actually trying to overthrow a real government. The government was there, but it was a bit of a shell. Right. Another thing to keep in mind about South America in general is that socially they tend to be a little bit more socialist there. And we're going to use socialist in the pure sense of the word and not in the uh, pejorative, you know, almost communist sense that it tends to get used, um, you know, for the next 50 years after where we're talking. So they tend to value things like community and they tend to value things like social programs in place such as healthcare, education, support for um, the poor or the very old or the very young. They just tend to be more open to stuff like that than, say, in the United States, where it's a little bit more strongly capitalist in in, in society as well as in politics, right? Because right. politics always reflect the people living in a place to some degree, ideally as closely as possible, although that doesn't always happen. Yeah. When when regimes change over in South America, in general, what you're going to see is either a very strong military dictator or you're going to see someone or, or one person or a group of people that have fairly strong socialist leanings. So Sandino comes along, leads this revolt, takes a number of years to actually overthrow the government, but it, it, it starts out with a few thousand men some accounts say that it may have even been a few hundred men and just sort of like grew from there it was a very populist grassroots movement okay and sandino himself had very socialist leanings so he was very interested in basically nationalizing all of the land that had been taken by american corporations Mm -hmm. Uh, unfortunately this makes him very anti-american as well I, i i say unfortunately mostly because it's unfortunate for him in that he took a power in 1933 and by 1934 had been killed in a coup led by a man who was backed by the CIA. Okay. The United States meddles in South America. And it's gotten to a point where some of the meddling that happens, it sounds like a joke. Because it doesn't seem like any country would actually ever be doing the kind of things that they actually did in South America. Why? Because because the kinds of things that they were meddling in were 
like openly overthrowing publicly elected dictator or uh, publicly elected leaders like Sandino. Okay. Like, if you were like, if that happened today, if they went to, first of all, this this relies on it being in South America and not a uh, a more developed country. Second of all, it sort of relies on a uh, a sense of legitimacy of the American system over other systems, right? Mm-hmm. But what happens is, if that happened anywhere else in the world at any other time in history, it like no one would stand for it. Like if 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 the CIA sent hitmen over to I don't know Sweden now, yeah, and said you know what I think your government's a little too socialist knocked off the president and then funded a guerrilla force to overthrow the government and put in a, a fascist but but american uh friendly government like that that would that would never stand right but my guess is that and i, I i'm not super familiar with you know the the, the various cia assass- assassinations but but that they try to do it in a way that made it seem like it was not them you'd think so but they were not not very covert about it. They were not very covert about it. The guy who took over after Sandino was killed was named Somoza, S O M O Z A. It's not a samosa. <laughs> I had a lot of trouble with this. I have to like very carefully pronounce it. And he was leading uh, an army that was he called the National Guard. The National Guard had been trained. The National Guard had been taken out of the country to a military base in Texas and given U.S. military training. Okay. So you'd think they'd cover it up a little bit more. But they did things like overtly train this uh, this dictator's uh, army before he managed to overthrow the actually democratically elected Sandino. Right. But I guess so my so I guess my my big question, though, is that, like, how would how would the people of Nicaragua know? Right, because it's 1933. There's, there's. You have, you have your, your local, your national newspaper. Sure. And that's it. And and you know, if you take these guys out of the country covertly mm. and train them in Texas, yeah, and then bring them back, yeah. I feel like in 1933 you could probably do that without anyone being the wiser. I see what you're getting at. Um, the first thing to remember is that. Like, 1933 wasn't that long ago. They were pretty good at the whole mass media thing. Not as good as they are now, but you could get the word out there pretty well. And it's not as though Sandino and his supporters didn't know this was happening. They were telling the people about it. Okay. Because, wow, did that look bad for them. Yeah. Super bad. And Sandino... I mean, this this hit didn't come out of nowhere. These These were opponents to Sandino's government all throughout the well, year and a half or so that he was actually president. So when they heard about this stuff, they were telling the people. And in fact, it, it strengthened Sandino's position there because his whole position was anti-American and pro-Nicaraguan. Mm-hmm. Because all he has to do is say, look what's happening. Like, look what the Americans are doing to us. This is what I've been telling you all along. This is what we're trying to avoid. This is why, or like, this is what our government stands for. And it's in his best interest to tell everyone what's going on. So, yes, the people were being told. Now, how much they believed it, because this is propaganda, true or false, is 
debatable. That's not something we can ever really know with a lot of accuracy. Yeah. But it's not as though this is the first time that the CIA has meddled in South America either. Okay. They know that this is a thing that happens. They know that the United States gets involved in their politics. So, you know, for him to say Somoza's troops are being trained by the CIA. Yeah. It doesn't take a lot for the people to believe him on that one. Now, Somoza ruled until his death and then his son took over. It was like a, a... it was basically a 40 to 45 year long reign of Somoza's mm-hmm. until finally Anastasio Somoza, uh, the, the son, started really losing support in the 70s. I, I mean, there's 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 military dictator and then there's military dictator out of control. And he just let it get a little bit too far. He was doing things like, you know, just straight up capturing and torturing civilians for no reason whatsoever. He was doing things like uh, there had been a, an earthquake in Nicaragua. And when the aid money came in internationally, he embezzled most of it rather than using it to actually help feed his people or rebuild infrastructure or any of that stuff. Sure. That's the kind of thing that gets you a coup. It was bad enough that even though the Somozas were very pro-American, which is how they got into power in the first place, even though they were pro-American, Jimmy Carter actually officially distanced himself from the Somoza regime, basically saying, you know what, I appreciate that you guys are willing to help out American business, but you, you got to stop this. This is too far. Yeah. That's when you know you've pushed it too far as a South American military dictator. <laughs> That was in 1977 that he lost support. And so obviously the United States knew that his time was kind of limited. So they started backing um, a group called the FAO. It's uh, the the initials of Broad Opposition Front, but in Spanish. Okay. Basically, they were very similar to Somoza in policy, but without the whole... uh, Torturing civilians. Torture, murder, rape, all that stuff that he was up to. So they were trying really hard to get the uh, the FAO into power, but before they could get him in there, uh, a band that had been around for quite a while, actually, at this point, called the Sandinistas, named after Sandino, who had held power for a year and a half, yeah. managed to overthrow Somoza's government. Now, the Sandinistas named themselves after Sandino, both like kind of in spirit of you know revolutionary, but also because they fell fairly closely in line with the more socialist tendencies that Sandino had been promoting. Sure. It really sounds when we talk about this, like the Sandinistas are like the super good guys and they can do no wrong. They were terrible. Their human rights violations were not good. They, they did a bad job of a lot of that stuff. So let's get that out there right away. That being said, if you were a citizen of Nicaragua in 1979 you were probably happy that the Sandinistas had kicked Somoza out. So they were, they were less bad. They were less bad. Again, arguable, but, uh, you know, the, 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 the random torturings went down drastically. Mm-hmm. Now you were only going to get tortured if you were, like, a, a vocal opponent of them and a vocal supporter of uh, Somoza. What a paradise. So, uh, yeah, right. Uh, there, there's... There's nothing quite so disheartening as looking over South American politics in the 20th century. It's just... Ugly? It's ugly. It's constantly ugly. 
Now, here's the thing. Back in the 30s, the biggest concern with a coup was, you know, that American business would be hurt, right? We're talking 1979. It is the height of the Cold War. And we have a problem because the Sandinistas are pretty socialist-leaning. So how does universal health care sound? How does raising the literacy rate from below 50% up to around 92% in six months sound? How does nationalizing all of the Somoza's land, as well as all the American corporations' land, and repatriating it to Nicaraguan farmers sound? Sound pretty good? Yeah. That's because you're a pinko communist, and that is (laughs) un-American thoughts, my friend. The Americans hated it. It, yeah. it smacked of communism and they were not happy with it, especially because the Sandinistas basically said, look, we're not just doing whatever the United States say. There was a kind of un, uh, kind of informal understanding that a lot of the South American nations would just go along with American policy on a lot of stuff. If for no reason other than they didn't want to get assassinated by the CIA. Was there a fear that they would... I don't know, side with the Soviets at some point or... Absolutely. The policy of the United States at this point in time is something called containment, which is basically there are some communist countries out there. We will not let communism spread any further than it has. Right. That's why you see them going to war in a place like Vietnam. Like, strategically speaking, there isn't a lot threatening the United States about whether or not Vietnam is communist or not. But... From an ideological point of view, we can't let Vietnam, Vietnam fall to communism. Because once that country does, then it's just a matter of time until another does and another does. On top of that, there's this view that the, um, the Western Hemisphere is their home. It's their sphere of influence. They can't allow communism into this area. That's why they were so ardently against every single socialist government that came up in, in in South America during the Cold War. That's why they went after Che Guevara so hard. He was promoting communism. That's why they had such a problem with, uh, with Cuba, because they had gone communist. Right. The, when you look at the Cuban Revolution, like the, we're way off track here, but that's okay. It's interesting <laughs> anyways. When you look at the early days of the Cuban Revolution, it wasn't incredibly radical, if you look at it from sort of where it falls on the the political spectrum and had the United States been willing to work with Castro and work with the people of Cuba, there's a good chance that they could have been a very moderate socialist nation. Uh, Instead, they cut off all support to Cuba and Cuba was forced to turn to the only superpower that would help them, the Soviets, but only if they would go even further along that spectrum to the left than they already were right so that's where you get yourself into the cuban missile crisis and all that stuff because there is zero interest from the american side in uh dealing diplomatically with a socialist country right it is all about containment it is capitalist or nothing they would rather and often did They would rather have a military dictator who was willing to throw the Americans a bone in power than they were to have a popularly elected but socialist-leaning 
and non-US oriented leader in power. So any time that a leader was less interested in falling into line with the with the status quo than they were in looking after their own nation, that was a problem for them. They needed that 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 uh, informal but very very real level of support of falling in line with the rest of the Americas. But the Sandinistas take power. They say, "No, I'm not falling in line." It was a policy called non-alignment. Okay. that they put into place which is basically just them saying like listen i'm not i'm not your enemy but at the same time i'm going to do what's best for nicaragua and what's best for nicaragua is getting people doctors teaching people to read you know getting them actual farmland where they can grow food yeah sounds like a super reasonable stance to take yep but it was too far to the left for the united states and so the soviets were more than happy to support the sandinistas so at this point, we get another group comes up, the uh, Contra Revolucionarios, which was shortened down to Contra. Just means counter-revolutionary in Spanish. It's not that exciting a name, yeah. even though it reminds me of a sweet NES game and sounds super cool. <laughs> um, basically, the Contras were initially former National Guardsmen, so that body of military that had been taken up to the U.S. and trained under Somoza, right? Right, right? They weren't going to do well with the Sandinistas in power. You don't live a good life as a former National Guardsman in okay. Nicaragua in 1980. It's just kind of how it is. And a lot of them were also ideologically opposed to the, the Sandinistas. I mean, it's not as though they kicked Somoza out and everyone was happy with the Sandinistas. That's not true at all. More people were interested in supporting the Sandinistas than any other group, but there were definitely uh, opposing groups here. Now, the Contras, as soon as there was any showing of, of opposition to, to the Sandinistas, the CIA stepped in and they started funding them. They started giving them weapons. They started giving them training. They helped them organize. They gave them... Uh, satellite imagery like as much support as you could possibly hope everything to get everything short of actually bringing them to Texas this time that's correct and I could be wrong on this I will double check they may have still actually brought them into Texas I don't remember I think at that point it had stopped but it is possible that's okay. that's a thing that happened quite a bit with South American armies now Nicaragua had actually been doing a really good job of forming a new popular army which is just to say that it's volunteers and it's uh you know people who are more interested in supporting the sandinistas than it is people who are pseudo cia operatives right and these are the people that the contra revolutionarios were fighting but yeah as, as soon as as soon as the contras kind of popped up the cia got right on funding them because they wanted the the uh, the Sandinistas out as soon as possible. They looked at this as like a, an anomaly, a blip. They wanted it taken care of. Right. These th This funding was like fully authorized by the Reagan administration. Like it's not as though this is some sort of like clandestine operation that nobody knew about and found out about later and was really sorry. Right. This was like there was Reagan's signature on it. He personally was behind the Contras. Again, mostly because of an ideological stand. But mm -hmm. Reagan 
kind of took containment to a new level in a lot of ways. He was interested in actually pushing back communism. And so the idea of like a newly socialist party coming up in South America, which he would basically consider his backyard on a geopolitical level, uh, it really bothered him. So in, in funding the Contras, would he would he have had the support of the majority of Americans, probably? Yes, and a lot of that was thanks to uh, uh, operations by the CIA in propaganda within the U.S., where right. they're making... They're playing up anything that the that the Sandinistas do. So any and and again, they happened. Any war crimes that they committed, any any executions, any tortures that were committed by the Sandinistas were played up, and any atrocities committed by the Contras were really played down. So there was a lot of sort of propaganda and counter propaganda going on here uh, to make the Contras seem like a really noble. Uh, counter-revolutionary fighting force that was fighting for freedom, basically. And it's it's important to note that at this point in time, it's not unusual to have the government funding these types of groups. I mean, if you look at the history of of um, Afghanistan at all, I mean, the, the groups that we were funding, or I, I should say they were funding over there, like, nobody should have been giving the Mujahideen money. Right. But they were fighting the Soviets, we need to roll things back, give them the money to fight the Soviets, and push the Soviet Union out of Afghanistan. Mm. So it wasn't at all about the, 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 the groups that they were supporting. It was completely about the groups that they were opposing. Right. The Contras ran into a problem really quickly, which was that they had a hard time actually fighting the legitimate government or the legitimate army. They were outmatched. Okay. They generally were hiding, you know, in Honduras to the north and in Costa Rica to the south, like just across the border. And they were hitting in guerrilla in guerrilla actions, which isn't super effective. I mean, it can be. But if you manage to consolidate power quickly enough, as the Sandinistas did, you can mount a fairly sizable defense against that sure. sort of action. So the Contras decide that their best... Uh, their best move once they couldn't actually compete with the with the military on conventional uh, on a conventional level was that they just became like full-on terrorists okay they started doing things like attacking socialist institutions like schools where children were or hospitals where sick people were they set underwater mines and harbors which is like illegal on a world court type level yeah like super illegal it's you don't you don't set underwater mines yeah and they just started again straight murder torture for basically no reason other than to make people fear the contras and so just to be clear they were having they were having this trouble fighting the sandinistas even with all of the u.s support that they were receiving Mm -hmm. okay yeah, they, they I, I mean, they probably could have made significant headway against the government if they had stayed focused on that. But what they chose to focus on instead was this ideological war, where it's kind of like, if you guys want these socialist institutions, we'll show you what happens to these socialist institutions. Which I think is a really bad way of doing it, but these are, you know, guerrilla terrorists hiding in the jungles of South America in the 80s so who knows (laughs) anyway 
the U.S. supported this up until 1984 when they basically said, "I we can't we can't give these people money anymore. Like they're 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 terrible people. We've yeah. got to stop this." So between 1982 and 1984, there was a series of amendments called the Boland Amendments, where Congress basically shut off any legitimate government funding to the San or to the Contras. Okay, they said. You know, they, they started off saying, like, okay, we can't fund the Contras in their fight against the legitimate government. However, we can provide uh, medical support or we can provide food and, you know, sort of non-direct support like that. And then they kind of scaled it back to, like, okay, we can't give any, like, direct government funding to the to the Contras and then it was okay the CIA isn't allowed to give them any more money like it's just over right and by 1984 essentially any legal funding to the Contras had dried up completely because they were terrible terrible people doing terrible things I think that the Bolin Amendment is probably a good place to leave Nicaragua for right now okay because that's a pretty good set of uh of background for that part of the story anyways sure um how are you feeling about the nicaragua situation right now that's a that's a loaded question maybe like the people of nicaragua have it really rough right now yeah they, they absolutely do maybe maybe and a that, better way and the cia is just gonna wait for another group that they can fund that will hopefully tapple the sandinistas at some point yeah, that's that's kind of how it goes down there. I, I think I think maybe how do you feel was maybe a, a poor way of asking that question. What what do you feel like you have a good enough understanding of what's going on there at least to maybe move the, yeah. the story forward? Yeah, definitely. Okay. I, I don't normally check in that specifically, but I realize how complex the, the Iran Contra affair gets. And so I wanna make sure everyone's on like a really good like we're leaving it at a good spot where we know what's going on down yeah, there. Yeah, I feel good. Excellent. All right. Well, we will take a quick break there then. And uh, when we come back, we'll talk a little bit about uh, what's going on over in the Middle East. And that should be super straightforward. All right. All right. We're back on HI101 here with Paul McGowan. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we are. And uh, we just finished up talking about uh, a little bit of background on Honduras. Nicaragua. That's the one. <laughs> oh, man. You keep wanting to say Honduras today. I don't know why. I have no idea why I mix those two up. I mean, they're, they're right next to each other, but that's no excuse. <laughs> well, I mean, maybe you kept looking at the map and... Don't uh, make excuses for me, Paul. Okay. I don't deserve them. <laughs> um... Speaking of being slightly unprepared, I didn't know how much work this next section was going to be until I actually got into it. Mm -hmm. So I'm probably not going to give it the detail it deserves. Um, I always kind of put a disclaimer on this show that, you know, it's a, it's a brief overview and, you know, don't, don't pretend yeah. that this is like a, a replacement for doing any in-depth reading yeah, on anything. It's not a six hour podcast. Absolutely. It's not. And, and this, this one is, is especially worthy of that disclaimer because I don't know enough about it. And the more I read about it, the more lost I got. So we're going to do our best. Okay. And I think we're going to do pretty good. But if there's anyone out there that's actually knowledgeable on this, uh, they're going to take me right to school on it. It's going to be bad. I will 
check the comment section on your website after this goes up. Yeah, there might be something there. Uh, we're going to talk about the Iran-Iraq war. Sweet. What do you know about the Iran-Iraq war? Absolutely pretty much nothing. I knew that it had happened. I knew before I did this research that that's basically where Saddam Hussein got his got his start. <laughs> that was about it. Yeah. Yeah, it's super complex, just like anything else in the Middle East, right? And yeah, like I said, we'll we'll do we'll do an overview, but you could we we could spend a, a whole show on this quite easily. There's a lot of material there. Apparently, the Iran-Iraq War is the longest conventional war in the 20th century. It I ran. Did not know that. It ran from 1980 to 1988, so you know a good eight years. Yeah. But if you think about it, I mean, World War II seems like it ran for a long time. It was six years long. Like, yeah. Even at the outside, like the, you know, the U.S. only counted from 41, so four years. You know, uh, World War One was four. Four years, basically. Eight and years is a long time. Even stuff like uh, Vietnam, that's kind of renowned for being long-lasting. You know, really, what happened there was that the conventional war lasted a very short amount of time, and it moved into this sort of guerrilla warfare phase, which is. You know, how you get that stat of this being the longest conventional war. There were eight years continuous of actual armies fighting actual armies, not, right. you know, small groups like, well, I guess I shouldn't call the Viet Cong small, but like not um, officially sanctioned, right, mm-hmm. uh, is, is is the main difference there. So, and, and yet I know nothing about it, which is really weird, but, but I did some reading and we're going to get into it. So, I mean... The border between Iran and Iraq is, like so many other things in that part of the world, very artificial. Right. In that, you know, large swaths of that territory have changed hands so many times over history that the idea of, like, a natural border in that area is pretty nebulous. Like, it's not really a thing. And Iraq itself has only really been a country since the 1930s. It was under the uh, the Ottoman Empire before that, and a whole bunch of other people before that. But yeah, it really only got started in the 1930s. Okay. Now, kind of the the, the crux of this whole issue in the in the 1980s began with a dispute of the control of this waterway, the uh, the uh, Shat al Arab waterway. That's probably wrong, but I got to tell people something. <laughs> and basically what happened there is they measured the the border of this waterway when it was at low tide. Okay. And you can only get boats through when it's at high tide. And the way that they measured it at low tide meant that when it is high tide, most of the waterway is in Iraqi territory. Okay. Which means that the waterway essentially belongs to Iraq, which means that they can charge tolls to go through this waterway. Now, this is one of the main waterways out of Iran into the Persian Gulf. Okay. So shipping through there is relatively important, and they made a lot of money off of these uh, off of these tolls. It's funny how many wars start over stuff like who has control of a waterway, because I think within the fiction of the twentieth century, which isn't really fiction, but like in in, in our in our narrative of the twentieth century with the World War Two and the good guys versus nazis and the the whole just war idea right i think it's really easy to forget how often wars are started over things like i want that waterway 
Yeah. Or, you know, even you guys have been charging us too much for that waterway and this will not stand. Paying tolls would make anybody mad. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, I, I think it's important to remember how, how frequent that's actually a, a cause of war. Not specifically waterways, but, you know, relatively petty economic arguments. Sure. Iraq was never the most powerful country um, for the for a good chunk of the 20th century. They were, I mean, just with their location there, they had trouble kind of gaining a strong enough army to contend with the many countries around them that already had strong armies. Sure. And this all sort of came to a head in 1969, where Iran just stopped honoring the treaty. They stopped paying any of the tolls. And there were some brief border skirmishes over it, but everyone kind of knew what the score was on that one. And neither of them were really ready to go to actual war yet. So they just stopped paying tolls. Um, There was, you know, so this, this lukewarm aggression kind of went on for... Uh, the next five or six years until it sort of cooled off because they kind of just got sick of it and they kind of went, you know what, there's enough problems in this area. We're dealing with Lebanon. We're dealing with Syria. We're dealing with like all these other problems uh, as well as the Israeli problem, Mm -hmm. which is that Israel was plunked down in what used to be Palestine. And we were all told that we needed to pretend like it's always been there, which, you know, Whichever side of the issue you end up on, you have to admit it's a little bit problematic for the people who were there before that happened. By 1975, things were actually going okay. They were getting along all right. In fact, it was starting to get, it was starting to look like they may even be heading towards being allies. It was kind of going that way. Okay. Uh, the Iranian intelligence provided the Iraqis some information on a possible soviet coup which is a huge gesture of goodwill especially between two countries that were trading pod shots across a a waterway not five years before right and this is like that's that's a really good sign once you start dealing with intelligence stuff that's that's a really good sign of improved relations then in 1979 we get the iranian revolution again a subject i feel like i should know a lot more about than i really do But essentially what happened was that the Shah of Iran, you could call him a king for all intents and purposes, who was relatively friendly towards the United States, was overthrown in favor of a republic, which is very positive, Mm -hmm. that was based on extremely devout Islamic um, religious law, which is a little bit more of a problem Uh, if you're looking at it from the perspective of the United States. Sure. The Middle East has always been a problem for, you know, millennia. And when the United States started getting interests in the the area, you know, nothing really changed. Uh, Ever since the the OPEC oil crisis in the mid-70s, I don't know how much you know about that, but... Not very much. Essentially, OPEC, so all the oil-producing countries, they, they, they hiked their prices on oil. And it put oil prices worldwide through the roof and created an oil shortage because okay. they essentially stopped shipping oil as well. It, it was, you know, it's it's here where you hear about, you hear stories about people, you know, lining up around the block to fill up at a gas station because yeah. that gas station actually has some gas to fill up on, which is kind of wild. I don't think we could, 
I, well, I don't know. I was about to say, I don't think we could ever get to that point anymore, but who knows? Yeah. Um, I, I don't think it would happen as easily as it did in the mid-70s. Mm-hmm. So really, they were interested in things that were going on in the Middle East, and they wanted to have a little bit more control because they didn't want a situation where someone could just turn off the tap and they'd be held hostage again. Right. Makes sense. I can see why your national interest would lie in that direction. And what they saw was one of the most powerful countries in the area, Iran, becoming, like, overnight becoming virulently anti-American. Uh, did you see Argo? I did not see Argo. Oh, man. That's, like, the only touchstone I have for Iranian revolution these <laughs> days. Um, I'm sorry. No, that's okay. That's, that's when Argo takes place, is during the Iranian okay. revolution. The Iranians took the entire American embassy hostage, and Argo is basically about getting them out. Like right. during the revolution kind of thing. It's not a bad movie. It it super discounts the Canadian uh involvement yeah, in yeah, the whole I thing. Reading about that. Which is too bad, but that's historical fiction for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a movie, it's not a textbook. So Yeah. We can And we it can... has been athletic, which is too bad, but, but we... that's historical fiction for you. <laughs> we can all take a deep breath and look deep within ourselves and learn to forgive. Uh-huh. <laughs> Both the inaccuracies and Ben Affleck. (laughs) (laughs) So, I I mean, and when I say overnight, it really did happen quite quickly. And the reorganization was really, really severe and really extreme. And, you know, anytime there's a revolution, it's really, really hard to guess until it's all over which side is going to be the winning side. Sure. So... If you had to pick the person that you wanted to be during a revolution, you would pretty much want like the most nondescript peasant out in the countryside living a a subsistence farming life that you can find. Because anyone in any sort of position of power is going to have to pick a side. And if they pick the wrong side, they're going to be against the wall. Right. That's just revolutions. That's every revolution that has ever happened. You pick wrong, you're... At, at best exiled that's like your best your best uh hope is 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 exiled and completely disgraced right uh more often than not it means you're dead so pick carefully mm-hmm. the iranian military was not immune to this there were a lot of generals a lot of high-ranking officials a lot of officers uh that picked wrong tough luck it's it's also a really good time if you're a young officer to get like really quick advancement if you do pick right. Sure. <laughs> That's how Napoleon got to general at like 24 or whatever it was. There was just nobody, nobody. Above. There was nobody in his way. Yeah, they just hand out commissions left, right, and center. It's crazy. Dang. Yeah, I know, right? Um. So, this revolution is going on, and Saddam Hussein looks at this and goes, perfect, they're in disarray. This is a time to take back all those tolls that they never paid. (laughs) Sure. That's a very kind way of putting it. It's a very kind way of putting it. Because while things had been getting friendlier throughout the 70s and things were going okay, Mm -hmm. the Iraqis didn't forget how badly outmatched they were by the Iranian military. And they had spent that entire time recruiting men, training men, arming men Mm -hmm. and they were in a much better position than they used to be so early in 1980 
the Iraqis uh, invaded Iran, and that was kind of the, the start of the Iran-Iraq war. And I don't think that there were any delusions about, you know, uh, a complete and utter defeat of Iran. They knew that Iran was very, very powerful. Um, they knew that sooner they were going to get their feet back under them. And uh, really what Iraq was looking for was to establish themselves as one of the great powers of the Middle East, because that's a status that they hadn't had, right? Like right. The, they were a new country. They'd only been around for 40 years or so. It's, it's sometimes one of the ways that you can make a name for yourself is by going to war and doing pretty well, especially against someone who's old and established. So, and I don't know if this is an easy question to answer, but so would they have just, I mean, were they just ready to go to war with whoever appeared, whoever shared a border with them and appeared weakest? That is a tough question. Because they share borders with a number of other countries that they probably could have gone to war with, but they, uh, they, they didn't. And I, I don't know if, it, like, it's, it's hard to say if, uh, you know, if Syria had gone through a major political revolution, whether or not they would have attacked Syria um, under similar pretexts. I'm not sure. I don't know enough about uh, Iraqi politics at that point in time to make a judgment call on whether or not that was something they were looking for. Yeah. Or whether it was more a case of an opportunity presenting itself and them taking it. Mm-hmm. Which I suppose isn't the biggest distinction, but I think it is a distinction. Even though this war is taking place in the 80s, these two countries are not that well equipped in general. And it basically ended up looking a lot like World War One in a lot of ways. Trenches were dug, barbed wire was spun out. Sure. There were big differences, namely things like mechanized infantry, so tanks and, and the like, uh, as well as anti-tank missiles which you didn't see as much of in World War One, Yeah. But in reality, uh, lines were drawn fairly early and it turned into a bit of a war of attrition. Uh, the lines didn't change that much between the two countries. But what was happening there is that Iraq was making a name for themselves. And, you know, to, to fast forward to the, the end of this thing, there's, there's other points I need to, to make. But, it, you know, when the war ended in 1988, it was widely considered a stalemate there wasn't really a clear winner but if you look at it in terms of sort of intangibles in terms of uh global political power iraq definitely gained a lot more out of having been involved in the conflict than they lost in you know their actual conventional military losses sure and when you say you gained that was just gained Reputation, recognition, kind yeah, of re- reputation, okay. recognition, prestige—if you want to call it that—it uh, was, it was a reason for people to start taking Iraq more seriously than they had before then. Okay. Because I mean, it's it's basically a former British colony. It's not exactly a hundred percent true. You'll hear stuff like that thrown around all the time. Uh, the the reality of the history of Iraq is a lot more com- uh, complicated than that. But people. Th- saw it as nearly as artificial as they saw uh, Israel when it was formed. But the bigger difference there is that it was at least an Islamic nation 
uh, a secular Islamic nation, but from a more civilization standpoint, which is something you have to actually consider in the Middle East, which is kind of difficult to wrap your head around a little bit. From that standpoint, they didn't, like, they, they still fit in with the rest, at least, whereas there's a lot more problems religiously with with the, the artificiality of, of Israel. Mm-hmm. So by 1982, there was open American support for Iraq, mostly because they did not like the new Iran. The new Iran was openly anti-American. They were... Yeah, I mean, that's that's the biggest problem with them. The fact that they were fairly totalitarian was also an issue. The fact that they had a lot of influence in the area, but were using that influence towards promoting a, you know, the, the uh, uh, an Islamic civilization as a cause was a little bit of a problem for them. Mm-hmm. Because... We're talking about the 80s and it's supposed to be, you know, in the, in the, again, that fiction that we've created, it's supposed to be two players on the board, the Soviet Union and the United States. Right. Who do these guys think they are? They're supposed to be with one of these guys. But Iran wasn't with either of them. They weren't interested. They were, again, uh, it's, it's, it's similar to, on some level, to what Nicaragua was doing which is not falling in line with one of the existing powers, right? They're doing what they believed was best for Iran. Sure. And that makes people really angry when you don't fall in line. It makes a lot of people really angry. So anytime a conflict comes up in the Cold War, you get both superpowers looking to pick a side and support a side. The thing is, both the Soviet Union and the United States couldn't stand Iran. So they were both selling weapons to Iraq. Iraq was flush with weapons. They could get all the weapons they wanted. Okay. Uh, no problem. Iran, uh, they could get it from China. China will sell to anybody. They're fine with it. They've got no dog in the fight. Yeah. But uh, they were having a tough time actually getting any sort of armaments whatsoever. And once again, that that support wasn't just in the form of you know, here are a bunch of guns. It was also that the Americans were selling them intelligence. They were even going so far as to uh, design and teach military operations for them. They, they, they would actually say, okay, well, there are Iranian troops here, here, and here. What you guys should do is this sort of maneuver and attack them there at this point in time. Right. So, like, heavy, heavy assistance then. Yes, but not technically in the war. Right. Because that would be wrong. Sorry, that was a little bit, that was a little bit callous. I mean, they couldn't really afford politically to actually put American boots on the ground. Okay. It just wouldn't have made any sense because the type of investment that that would involve uh, politically would be too difficult to justify both to the American people and to sort of the, the world stage. It smacks so strongly of we're trying to meddle in this area of the world that you can't actually commit troops to it yeah. without a better reason than we want to meddle in uh, the state of this part of the world. Now, what they were hoping for out of this was an Iraq who would be very sympathetic to American cause because all they have in the, in the Middle East at this point is Israel and Israel's not making any friends. So if they could have an ally who was 
part of the uh, part of the Middle East, but also uh, willing to work closely with the United States, that would be a huge win for them. Right. But you don't do that by showing up yourself and fighting the war. You do it by showing them all the support that you can give. Mm-hmm. It's a fine line to walk. Yeah. But they've gotten really good at it because the Cold War is all about proxy wars. So they know a thing or two about funding other countries yeah. that are fighting other countries. So they made it work. By the mid-80s, I mean, they've gone through this whole, like, trench warfare thing. They've gotten to, like, using cruise missiles against other cities and stuff like that. Like, really nasty stuff. In around here is where you get the war crimes that Saddam Hussein was eventually uh, executed on. Right. Where he was attacking uh, Kurds using uh, chemical warfare, mustard gas mostly. Mm -hmm. Uh, But that wasn't... I was going to say that in a bad way. I was going to say that wasn't a problem for the United States. I don't think that that's necessarily true. Um, I think that like some of the other situations that we've seen in South America, they were more willing to overlook some of those problems in favor of having a strong um, U.S. oriented ally in that particular area. Sure. But yeah, eventually that would definitely come back around on them. There's this funny thing in, in, in history that's only started bothering me a little more recently, which is that generally when, when people ask, like, when does history start kind of thing, generally the line is about 20 years before whenever you're talking about. Right. So for us right now, 1995, that used to not bother me when I was not much older than 20. Yeah. Now I'm getting into a range where something that could be considered technically historical could actually be in living memory for me. Sure. And unfortunately, we can't call history anything that happened before I personally, like me, was born. <laughs> like, I can't make the world do that. No. Which is too bad, to be honest. So this stuff does technically still fall into the purview of history. We can talk about it in a historical manner. The 20 years is to give us some sort of distance from the events in order to sort of analyze them critically. Yeah. Be removed from them emotionally, It's at least to some extent. And to have enough information about them that we feel like we can make a fairly good assessment of what actually happened. Sure. So I know it feels like we're creeping really close to current events on some of this stuff. We're still good. Okay. Man, if just like anything before when I was born, just that's history. (laughs) Everything else is the present. Yeah. That's not going to happen. The war, I mean, this is one of those wars where... It would be interesting to take like an hour or two to talk about it. It's really uninteresting to take 10 minutes to talk about it because the bullet points are just they fought a war, basically. Yeah. And there aren't a lot of big, notable battles that are in any way interesting outside of the context of the war itself. So basically, we're going to leave that part at they fought a war for a while. Okay. In 1988, there was a ceasefire that was brokered by the United Nations that was accepted by both Iran and Iraq, which is really interesting because usually you don't hear about the the United Nations doing stuff that's that... Impactful. Yeah. Oh, I know. I raised my eyebrows when you said that. Yeah, I noticed that. No, they they, they actually managed to broker a peace deal between the two countries. Oh, and An eight-year-long war. That's in the Middle East, too. It's, it's not often that they accede to things like peace treaties and then stick to them because they actually did stick to them, 
which is surprising. So yeah, it, it was it was over in 1988. It was, like I said, generally seen as a stalemate. Borders didn't really change. Lost about the same number of soldiers. You know, there were no major changes in politics over it. There was no major social change over it. To this day, that uh, that waterway still belongs to Iraq. So why are we talking about all of this? The major take-home points here are these ideas of both the United States and the Soviet Union looking to support Iraq. They've got their support behind Iraq. And the whole Iran-Contra affair revolves around the United States selling weapons to Iran. So what happened there? Yeah. Why would they do that? Quick question. So did... I'm going to assume that, that the Soviets and the United States, that, that neither had an idea that the other was selling weapons to Iraq. No, they absolutely knew. Uh, what mattered here is that they were both trying to out-helpful each other on this one. They were both fighting for Iraq's attentions. So so they were like two teenage boys fighting over and Iraq was the prettiest girl at the dance yeah yeah and one gave her a teddy bear and the other one bought her flowers how is she to choose dang and the answer is she takes both wow this is like an episode of Degrassi I I guess a little bit no the 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 teenage girl that is Iraq in this metaphor took both and was fine with it classic classic Um, sitcom setup (laughs) Uh, no, I mean, generally the way proxy wars shook out in the Cold War is that one of them would be supporting one of the sides that they found most uh, advantageous, and then the other one would come and try and support the second uh, side and support them so much that they would actually have a fighting chance. Right. Right? And generally the second one to come into a situation was at a bit of a disadvantage, right? Because the first one would have chosen whichever one seemed stronger anyways. But that doesn't mean that it always fell out that way. There were, there were times where, where the, uh, the, the second one to enter was able to support a side to, to enough effect that they managed to, to stop the, the expansion of the other ideology. I'm using a lot of really vague terms here. Uh, for example, um, when uh, when the Soviet Union was uh, supporting the push of communism down into Korea, Korea should have been more or less lost at that point in time. But the support uh, of the United States and South Korea, I, I mean, didn't manage to defeat communism, obviously, but it also managed to salvage half of the peninsula. Right. Um, but so it just, and I guess it's just, it seems unique to me because that's how I picture it is, is, the United States supporting one side and the Soviets supporting the other, but it sounds like in this case they're both supporting the same side unless they were supplying different factions within Iraq. No, they were both supporting the legitimate government of Iraq. Oh, okay. Um, I think the thing that's unique, that's most unique about this situation, there's a number of things that are unique about this situation, but the thing that's most unique is that Iran wants the weapons, and nothing else. Help from the United States or from Soviet Union 
during the Cold War comes with strings. And there's no getting around that. So that's the reason that Iran will buy weapons from China. That's why they'll sell to China. Or that's why China will sell to them. But for the United States to sell to Iran or for the Soviet Union to sell to Iran, they would be asking for something in return. And it's not necessarily, hey, we need you to go and become completely communist. But they might need... Let's see. I'm trying to think of good examples. The Soviets might want a naval base on the the Gulf Coast. Sure. Um, which would be like a big ask. Like that's a really big ask. Yeah. But Iran was also locked in an eight-year-long war with Iraq. And if it wasn't for the type of government that had come into play, namely a, a strongly Islamic re- uh, uh, republic, a different government might have acceded to some of those requests if given enough support. Iran didn't want to play ball. And it was pretty obvious that they weren't going to convince them to play ball. So both of them focused on the only other side in this. Partially because they wanted it. Partially because they knew that if they didn't, they would just be handing it to the other player. Right. If okay. if the U.S. wasn't supporting Iraq, uh, the Soviet Union would have just gotten all of the all of the influence in that area. Okay. So it's a different game. Yeah. It's a very different game. But it's still, you know, it's it's still consistent with Cold War values. It's very much right in keeping with what both of them were trying to do around the world at that point in time. Gotcha. So, I feel like at least the overview that I kind of came up with for the Iran-Iraq War is relatively straightforward. You've got a mostly secular, but still kind of part of the Arabic world, uh, Iraq on one side. You've got uh, a strongly Islamic theocratic republic in Iran, not really making any headway against each other, but with Iraq much more willing to play ball with both the West and the Soviet Union. But as I said earlier, the thing that this really leaves out is how Iran ended up getting American funding in the first place. Right. And, you know, looking at it, that is a complicated enough question that I think we might just leave that for next time. So let's leave things off there. And uh, and next time we'll start looking into the actual scandal itself, uh, how it started, what went down and what the fallout was. All right. All right. The actual Iran-Contra affair is complex enough that we didn't actually get to the political scandal itself in this episode or even the actions of the CIA before it was discovered by the public. That's alright though, sometimes with more complicated stories it's more important to have a solid starting point so things don't get too badly muddled later. Now that everybody is more or less caught up to the point that the American public would have been in 1986, we'll pick up the thread next time and watch the entire American National Security Council unravel when we give it a bit of a tug. That episode will be up on April 15th. As the format of this show inevitably leads to factual errors, I encourage you to visit hi101.ca and check out the corrections posted there. That's hi101.ca. If there are any errors I haven't addressed there, please let me know and I'll add them to the notes. And remember, HI101 is a broad introduction. If the subject we've discussed today has caught your attention, I encourage you to look for more information. It only gets better from here. I'm Adam Blesky, and this has been HI101.